Good morning. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. I'm going to start reading in actually chapter 3, verse 16. Hebrews 3, 16, and I'll read through to chapter 4, verse 2. Hebrews 3, 16 to 4, 2. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good and perfect, and your word is good and perfect. Indeed, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and as We read earlier from Romans 10, it is by your word through which you produce within us saving faith. And so we pray for that, Lord. As your word is preached, allow us, enable us, draw us to respond by submitting to your word and saving faith. May we believe the message and the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, for us who are your children, work within us and build up within us faithfulness. Strengthen our faith. We pray these things, Lord, for your glory forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2001, right after I had just become a Christian, by God's grace, I walked into and soon became a member of a really good church. What was noticeably distinct about this church was its excellent preaching. I mean, the preaching pastor was hot. It was good, good preaching. Not only was he engaging and captivating and winsome, but but he handled the word of God with such responsibility and allegiance to what the text was saying so that after every Sunday, no matter who you were, you'd walk away knowing and loving whatever passage he preached on. Not only was he an excellent preacher, but one of the best I've ever heard. He also taught preaching. He taught homiletics at Capital Bible Seminary, where Pastor Mike, Keith Kaufman, and myself, we all went and graduated from. During my time there, he was actually in the process of writing a, uh, and, and hopefully publishing a top-notch textbook for seminaries on the preaching of the word. It's an understatement to say that this guy was a gifted and talented preacher. In fact, I had heard other guys say that he was a preacher's preacher. Other preachers looked up to him under his leadership. The church actually raised up and sent out a lot of competent pastors and preachers. Until in 2008, when out of nowhere he decided to step down as head pastor and and pursue a business degree. It soon came out that he was involved in an adulterous affair. 
was unrepentant and unwilling to be reconciled to his wife. He soon left his wife. He left the church. And pretty quickly after that was saying things like, ah, my heart is hardened. Or even things like, I'm not sure I really believe in God anymore. As of now, he has still failed to repent, has failed to confess his need for Christ, and has failed to confess in the God of the Bible. And it shakes my heart and my voice even as I think about it. So when I'm thinking for these past two weeks on Hebrews 4, when I read verse 1, that while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should fail to reach it, I'm thinking of my old pastor. He was a hero in the faith for me. He was used by God in a foundational way in how I think about the faith, how I think about the church, about preaching. But now, he is the example for what failing to fear God really looks like. When I read Hebrews 4, verse 1, church, I take it seriously, very seriously. Because like my old pastor, a man who I thought was a strong stalwart in the faith, but ultimately a man who did not persevere to the end and has, as of now, forfeited it all, like him, I too can throw it all away. Hebrews is speaking here to every person, no matter who you are or where you are, out there or in the pulpit. No matter who you are, we need to fear God as Christians. As Keith reminded me just yesterday, and we were discussing this, he says, the moment we compromise with sin, justifying even the littlest of sins, we've taken the first step towards apostasy and becoming just like our old pastor. Friends, it's with that very real reality that the author of Hebrews reminds us to be afraid of having failed to enter into eternal rest. As we looked at last week, the author reminds us that none of us have have yet entered fully into God's rest. We're not there yet. And so in light of that future reality, live in faithful fear now. While the promise of entering God's rest still stands, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling now and tomorrow and the next day and on and on until we've reached the end. The warning to fear is a prolonged and sustained warning to continually and daily live in the fear of God for the rest of our lives. Because the second we begin to get comfortable, the second we begin to be okay with just a little sin here and a a little bit of sin there, it's the second we've stepped that much closer to losing it all. So as we begin to focus our attention this morning on verse 2, I want you to also be asking yourself, am I someone who calls myself a Christian and and yet I easily and enjoyably live in sin and feel no remorse, feel no conviction? Hebrews is calling you, commanding you, that you really need to fear. You may be finally judged to have failed to reach God's rest in the end. Ask yourself, do you secretly give yourself to sin without any repentance? You ought to be in fear that you are not a real Christian. And repent now and turn to Christ because ultimately a failure to enter into that final rest is, is a failure to make it into heaven and only proves that you were never really a Christian in the first place. The passage before us this morning is simple and clear. If last week we looked at the warning to fear God, this week the author is encouraging us to 
persevere to the end by putting our faith in God, our faith in the gospel. It's showing us the necessity of of persevering faith by presenting us to to us again the failure of those Jews who wandered and died in the wilderness back in the book of Numbers. Remember, it's connecting these two arguments. In verse 2, it's it's actually doing it with that little word for. Here's another conjunction. That word for is connecting the truth of verse 1, that we should fear lest we fail to enter into the rest. Why? Because verse 2, those Jews in Numbers didn't believe. They didn't have faith in the message they heard. Therefore, the author is telling us, don't be like them. Have faith. So look there at verse 2. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see three things from this passage. Firstly, the giving of the gospel. Secondly, I want us to look at the inability of the gospel. And thirdly, I want us to see the ability of the gospel. The giving of the gospel, the inability of the gospel, and the ability of the gospel. So first, the actual giving of the gospel. And and we see this here in the beginning of verse 2, right? The author tells us that good news has come to us just as it came to them. Those words translated good news come from the single Greek word, euangelion, a word we translate and know today as gospel. Hence, we very well could translate the beginning of verse 2 to say something like this, for the gospel came to us just as to them. The Greek is actually the verb form of gospel. So, So maybe a better translation would be, we have been evangelized just as they were, or we have been gospeled just as they were. Isn't that a remarkable statement on the giving of the gospel? The author is telling us that the same gospel we've received, the same gospel promise of Jesus Christ, was the same gospel that the people leaving slavery out of Egypt heard. It's the same gospel Moses heard. How could that be? Right? I mean, how could a message a few thousand years before the arrival of Christ be the same message concerning the death and resurrection? Of Jesus Christ. The message they heard was a promise of deliverance, deliverance from slavery, and a, and a promise of inheritance into the promised land where they would walk and dwell with God. But that was good news. Good news that ultimately pointed forward to the better good news. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3. I, I, keep your finger here in Hebrews 4 and, and turn back to Galatians 3 really quick. Galatians 3. And I want you to look there in Galatians 3, verse 8. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, when Paul says and the scripture, what does he mean by that? For Paul, the scriptures were the Old Testament, right? The New Testament hadn't been fully compiled yet for Paul. So Paul says, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, us, by faith, 
preached the gospel, the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So not only did the Jews wandering in the wilderness hear the gospel, not only did Moses get the gospel, but even Abraham received what Paul says is the very same gospel. Now, to be sure, the message that they heard was, it was shrouded in mystery. It didn't have all the clarity and all the details that we have today after the coming of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, friends, God has, from the beginning of time, been working out the same message of good news, the same gospel of salvation in which we must believe in, in order to be saved. We look back to Jesus Christ, just like those in the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is only through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, that any man can be saved. This is why we read and meditate and preach on from both the New Testament and the Old Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, the full force of redemptive salvation history is contained all in the Gospels, in the Scriptures. The Gospel is here. Remember what Jesus did right after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus? Remember in Luke 24, we see him walking with these two guys, and and Luke tells us they're trying to explain how saddened they were at the, the crucifixion and death of this guy, Jesus, who they thought might be their Messiah. Again, they didn't know it was him. They weren't aware that he had been raised from the dead, and and they couldn't quite recognize him in his new glorious state. They thought Jesus was still dead. But Jesus responds to them, and Luke tells us in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, that Jesus, he said these words, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the Old Testament has spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, in all the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Jesus read the whole Old Testament as about the gospel of himself. From the beginning pages of the Bible, we see the news of Jesus Christ. Concerning the Messiah, the Old Testament, okay, it was kind of like listening to AM radio out in the country. The New Testament, though, is like getting the same news but in color HD TV. The message is still the same, though. The Old Testament and the New Testament give us Christ. I think if we're honest, we've become a bit dulled to the profundity of this passage. Good news has come to us, just as it came to the original heroes of Hebrews just as it came to the generation wandering in the wilderness and to Moses and to Abraham. You see, we've got to remember that not everyone has the gospel come to them. We are a blessed, blessed people to be here right now with Bibles in front of us, churches that preach God's word. And the gospel often talked about and discussed. Do you realize that there are millions and millions of people right now who will die without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ, who will go to their graves and in eternity more without never knowing the gospel. They will perish in their sins without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Some of you might be thinking right now, and I'm pretty sure some of you are, well, how could could a good and loving God ever punish someone 
Why would a loving God ever send someone to hell if they never had the chance to hear the gospel? You've thought that question before. And the truth is that very question shows us how dulled we've become to the graciousness of the gospel. Because the truth of the matter is that people are not judged for not hearing the gospel. No, people are judged by God for their sin, for their actions and their lives of sin. The inescapable truth is that every person in every corner of the earth from every era in history has been a person who has sinned. All people throughout all time have fallen short of living up to God's righteous requirements. And so it's actually not unfair for God to judge and condemn people who have never heard the gospel. Now, for people who are sinners and who are by their nature rebellious against God, God's judgment is righteous and entirely in keeping with his goodness. Friends, it's the epitome of fairness. What is unfair is the gospel. That is nothing but amazing grace. That we've been given a message of good news that God has provided a way for us. God has provided for us an eternal rest before him in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, that is not fair. That message is a message we do not deserve. But oh, how sweet and good and gracious it is. Let us not take for granted the beautiful and gracious truth of verse 2 that the gospel has come to us. Wow. That leads us to our second point. The second thing that the author of Hebrews shows us is the inability of the gospel. The inability of the gospel. Now, I, I admit that that, that phrase, or the way I phrased it, is a bit provocative. I do that because I'm a preacher and I want to provoke you. But look at what verse 2 says. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Let's be clear. That may be the understatement of all time. It didn't benefit them. They didn't enter into God's promised land. They died under God's judgment in a desert wilderness. They perished without hope in their eternal welfare. Yes, there certainly was not any benefit. But they heard the same message. They were privy to the good news that God was willing to save them, to, to keep them, and to be their God and they be his people. And yet, because they did not believe that message, that message had no benefit to them. There was nothing profitable to them from merely hearing the good news. How many of us here this morning came to church thinking, as long as I come to the service and, and hear the sermon, I will benefit in some way? Because frankly, many of us think that way, don't we? We think that by merely hearing the gospel and giving our assent to what it says, we've somehow benefited from it spiritually, like some kind of spiritual osmosis. And yet, verse 2 is reminding us and dispelling the myth that merely hearing the good news is somehow good for us. Friends, unless you repent and believe, nothing you hear this morning will do you a lick of good. I mean, doesn't the devil himself and all of his demons believe and understand and know the gospel? Don't they agree that Jesus really is the Son of God? That Jesus really did die on the cross for sinners? And that God will save a people for himself and still they're eternally lost and without hope? 
I want you to turn with me really quickly to two passages. One is in 1 Corinthians 2, and the other passage is in 2 Corinthians 2, so that's helpful. But both these passages give us a profound understanding of what I think is going on here. So that the first passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and, and start there in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, <coughs> and I want us to look at verse 14. Let's see what Paul says here. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the natural person, that is the the unspiritual person, or a.k.a. just an unbeliever, someone who's not a Christian, this person does not and cannot accept the gospel, the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're folly to him, he says. They're, They're foolish. They don't make sense. In fact, he can't even understand it all precisely because it's of a spiritual nature. You see, according to the Bible, every person this side of Adam's fall comes into this world as a sinner. Doesn't David say in Psalm 51, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner and at rebellion against God. And that means every person that comes into this world is spiritually dead. Of course, a dead person can't make himself alive again. The only thing that can enliven him, or as Jesus put it, the only thing that can make him born again, well, is God. God can raise the dead to life, can't he? And so what the spiritually dead person needs is the work of God's spirit to open up their dead and deaf ears, to open up and, 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 and aliven their deadened and blind eyes, as Daniel prayed for this this morning, and ultimately to breathe new life into their dead and lifeless hearts. Earlier, Daniel read for us Romans 10, where we heard that faith comes from hearing the gospel. In other words, when the gospel is being preached or discussed or talked about or read, the Spirit of God uses the inspired words of the gospel to do something no one else could ever do, not even that own person, and that's bring about life. It's much like Lazarus in the grave. He could not get up until Jesus comes to him and says, Lazarus, arise. And Lazarus could not help but stand up. That's what the gospel does by the power of the Spirit. But friends, until that happens, until the Spirit works to renew and regenerate a dead man's heart, you know what the response will be to the preaching of the gospel? Eh, that's not for me. I I, I can't believe in silly stories and myths like that. People still do this? So that when the author of Hebrews says that the gospel came to them but it had no effect, that it did not benefit them, He's simply reiterating the simple biblical truth that unbelievers in their natural state do not like the gospel. It is repugnant to them, and hence they will never on their own accord willingly believe in it. So what are we doing here? Well, turn to the other passage, 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, look there, and also in verse 14. Look what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's talking here about his, his calling to give and share the gospel. Much like a man going around spraying the fragrance of perfume. It, it, it fragrances the air that he walks. Now, he, Paul knows, because he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul knows that naturally speaking, no one will accept his message. But he also knows that through the gospel, he is spreading the knowledge of God. And so he continues. Verse 15. For we who preach the good news are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice what he says there. As he shares the gospel with people, as he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God, he is spreading the aroma of Christ both to people who are being saved, but also to people who are perishing. And then look what he says in verse 16. To one, this is a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, the gospel that Paul is sharing, for some, by the Spirit of God applying it to their lives, much like Jesus to Lazarus, the gospel brings about life. New, born again, spirit-infused and empowered life. It is the aroma of life unto life. For others, though, that very same gospel brings about the aroma of death. It doesn't lead them to life. But rather, through their natural denial of it, it actually has a hardening effect upon them. It brings about death, spiritual and eternal. And this is why I think Paul cries at the end there, who is sufficient for these things? You see, he's deeply aware of how serious his task is. That by the very preaching of the gospel, I may actually be the means by which some people's hearts are hardened in unbelief and my hearers are brought this much closer to eternal death. If that's true, then yeah. Who wants to do this? And yet look at what Paul says in verse 17. We are not, like so many others, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. My duty, says Paul, isn't to win friends and influence people. My responsibility isn't to use the Bible to get big crowds and build big churches. That's easy. I can tickle ears and put on a light show and some fog machines and we'll get them in here. Now, I'm not a peddler of God's word. I'm a man of sincerity, commissioned by God to preach Christ and Christ alone. Because the truth is, if I don't preach Christ, who will? Yes, it may for some bring about further death, but for others, it is still their life. And that's a life they would not have if I hadn't brought the gospel. And so the ensuing result of of how people respond, says Paul, that's in the hands of God. He is sovereign over the hearts of men. My commission, our commission, is to simply preach and talk about Christ. If you're here this morning as someone who does not believe the gospel, dear friend, that is why. Your heart, though you may not feel it, is spiritually dead. You will not to submit, submit to Christ because you cannot submit to him. You don't want to believe in him. The heart wants what the heart wants. But unless you do, and, and this is serious, 
unless you submit and believe in Jesus as your only hope for salvation. The very hearing of this sermon may be another lodestone weighing you down as you continue to sink on your way toward eternal damnation. I pray that this sermon be to you an aroma of life, bringing about new life rather than the fragrance of death. I don't know who you are, but I've been praying for you this whole week. And I'll continue to pray for you the rest of the day and the rest of the week. Go to God today, today while you hear his voice and ask him, give me a new heart. Tell God that you want to believe and that you no longer desire to live in denial of the gospel and the good news that he brings. Ask God to give you ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand and to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, God promises us that whoever comes to him, he will never cast away. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to make us understand, to make real to us. He's told us that the wilderness generation, that they were unable to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. And so therefore, since that same promise of rest is still offered to us today, let us fear, lest any of us who would have failed to reach it. They heard the same good news that we've heard, but because they did not believe the mere message, the mere hearing of the gospel had no effect upon them. They were hardened in unbelief and failed to make it home. So let us not make the same eternal mistake. Which leads us in the end to our last point. Lastly, the ability of the gospel. Or in other words, the gospel with faith, it will save you. Look at how the author of Hebrews ends verse 2. He says, they did not benefit from the message they heard. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Or in other words, they were not united in faith with those people who actually did listen and believe. And remember in the context of this passage, who is it that the author is kind of showcasing to us as an example of unbelief? It's the wilderness generation, right, from the book of Numbers. But do you remember what... Was there anybody from that generation who actually did make it into the promised land? Caleb and Joshua. Remember? They had first gone into the land as spies, right? They checked it out. They saw the land flowing with milk and honey. They also saw the other people already in the land, the Nephilim giants, the people who wanted the Israelites dead. And what was their response? Let's go in and take it. If God has promised us this land, who are we to get a second opinion? In other words, Joshua and Caleb believed. But this was in contrast to the rest of the spies and sadly to the rest of the people who upon seeing and hearing about the people already in the land cried out and said, no, it's too much. We can't do this. Let's go back to Egypt. God's salvific exodus was a failure and, and God's promise to us of finding rest in the land, that's a fool's dream. The point of what the author is doing here is showcasing the necessity of saving faith. That the good news, the gospel needs to be accompanied by faith for it to be effective. And if faith is genuine, well then friends, it will be persistent. It will be a saving faith which perseveres to the end. Imagine what would have happened if the people united themselves in faith to the preaching and encouragement of Joshua and Caleb. They would have entered the land by faith. They would have been saved. But they didn't. They didn't believe, and so they did not persevere. 
The gospel by itself will not save you, friends. Right? The good news of Jesus Christ is not a declaration of, oh, hey, Jesus has come and died for you. That's it. That's all I wanted to tell you. No need to respond. just want you to know Jesus died for you. It's not a bumper sticker message. No, the gospel is the good news that Jesus has done something you can never do. In his obedience, he has died an unfair death on the cross for us and our sins. And in his resurrection unto everlasting life, he has provided a way for you to enter into God's everlasting rest. Therefore, says the gospel, commands the gospel, repent and believe. That's the crucial part, isn't it? Your response of faith. I got a thing here as we come to a close. Anybody know what this this thing is? What's that? Uh, it's not a mouse trap, it's a rat trap. Uh, this thing, will, uh, it'll do some damage. Um, I'm going to set it. And I'd like, this is peculiar for me, I know, but I'd like a volunteer to come up and, and set off this rat trap. Anybody? Okay, come on up. Here's a, oh, you can do it. I'll put it right there. Here. Yeah, watch your finger. Finger back. <laughs> oh, man. All right, there it is. That, uh, yeah, that, that broke the pencil. All right, that's good. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I'm going to set it again, and I'd like uh, somebody else this time to come up, and uh, I want them to set it off with their finger. <laughs> and I, I promise you, I promise you, it, it will not hurt you. Does anybody want to set it off with their finger? All right, come on up. Uh, Sarah, what hand are you? You write with your right hand? I'll give you your left hand. I'm just I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All right, set it off. Good, there it is. Well done. All right, round of applause for Sarah. The point of that is that I had a message. I gave a promise. You all heard it, but only one of you responded with action. Sarah showed in this silly example real saving faith. Friends, you could hear the message. You could say, okay, maybe, but saving faith is a faith that responds by going to and saying, yes, I not only believe it, but my actions and my works will prove it. Saving faith is a faith which hears, believes, and acts upon the promise. Doesn't the book of James make it abundantly clear that our faith without works is dead? What good is it, my brother, says James, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The answer is no. Faith without works is not a saving faith. You say you believe? Great. James reminds us that even the demons believe in God and shudder. And we know, as was prayed earlier, that faith is a gift from God. And we who believe in Jesus rejoice in the amazing grace of that gift. God has worked in us faithfulness. He's the author and finisher of our salvation. 
But the focus and emphasis of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, is on the responsibility of the hearer. Our response is our responsibility. One commentator on this passage put it this way. There will not be a single person who on the last day is going to be able to say before the judgment seat of God, well, God, you didn't give me faith. No, the question will be, why did you not believe? And the responsibility in that day will not rest upon the divine decrees. The responsibility in that day will rest upon the one who is supposed to believe. Friends, when God speaks, something always happens. When he first spoke, he created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the furthest galaxies. And he continues to speak. Even right now in his word, he is speaking to us. And the prophet Isaiah warns us, don't we know this, that the word of God does not return void? It always brings about some kind of change. So that we can say for sure that when God's word is being preached, neutrality is never an option. The only two options that we have is either we respond in heart-softening belief or we respond in heart-hardening unbelief. That's it. There's no in-between. For those who heard the good news out in the wilderness, they had heard it right on the heels of seeing God split the Red Sea. They had heard the good news right on the heels of seeing God's presence on Mount Sinai. They were intimately familiar with the presence and power of God, and yet they still responded in unbelief. They did not show true faith by believing the promise and taking the action to go into the land. For those who heard the message during the time of Christ, they heard it on the heels of seeing Jesus heal the blind, cure the sick, walk on water, and he actually raised the dead to life. And yet... They still responded, many of them in unbelief, crucify him, crucify him. Brothers and sisters, good news has come to us even right now. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He's been raised from the dead on our behalf. Oh, I plead with us that we do not respond in unbelief. Find life in him by repenting and believing in him. For that message is only a benefit to us if we respond to it and unite to it by faith, and go to Jesus Christ. Saving faith is a responding faith that will keep us to the end. So as the author of Hebrews reminds us, let us all run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray.